Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus. Brendan here with Mark, episode 292, Thursday, April the 27th, 2000. And a 23. And Mark, um, we're having a little chat before we went on air. You've, you're still up way north. In fact, you can't get too much further north, can you, where you are in uh, northern Australia? And it's um, still raining up there, is it? It is just, it's, I was saying to you how the weather's changed, how it's still wet, but um, the predominant weather systems up here at the moment are coming in from the east southeast and so they just have a different character which is um yeah i don't know just a different flavor up here at the moment i think that's one of the lucky aspects of you being up there mark for an extended period of time you get to see the the seasons and um, rolling into out of the wet season um, and by the sound of it you'll start to be inundated with actual tourists rather than just locals um, fairly soon once all the all the crossings become unflooded and um, all the um, all the other ways of getting in there um, become more more apparent yeah so um, you have to keep us filled in there mark it's a beautiful day here down in Melbourne as I speak, Mark, as usual. It's always a beautiful day in Melbourne, but this one's extra beautiful. And I must admit, I went for a walk with the two pups, the two greyhounds uh, this morning, Mark, and they wanted to sniff every little tree that, and blade of grass, but it was good. I just, just cruised along and life was good, Mark. It's one of those days where you're you know, smelling the roses and... Um, trying to avoid the dog poo, but it was it was a very good morning. So there's some beautiful walks down there at Research too, like just a beautiful part of the world. Yeah, we um we're very lucky. We're very lucky. Now, just a bit of bookkeeping, Mark, before we head into our episode. Uh, Vetgurus at gmail dot com. If you want to send us an email, we're always looking for emails and and people to say hello where they where they're from what they're doing um what sort of vet practice they're involved with we love it and if you go to vetgurus.com you can see a list and do it there's a simple search function there to look for all the previous episodes if you have a particular topic say for instance birds or reptiles or drill down into guinea pigs or whatever um you can see a list of all the episodes pertaining to those Topics, Mark. And I think, Mark, we need a bit of a drum roll. You do have a short review for us this week. I do. I, it's, um, it is not a veterinary review. It is a uh, photography equipment review. And I do, I have been developing a little bit of a gear acquisition syndrome. And um, and we, you and I were talking about uh, some of the macro photography that interests us. Yes. And I've been using, uh, for a while, I was using a um, flash-mounted diffuser. Um, and it, it, was, it was making my photographs very, very um, contrasty and, and uh, far too many high points. And, and the illumination wasn't spread over the little 
insect or frog that I was photographing. Um, and I did end up uh, trying a couple of different diffusers. And the one I'm using at the moment is simply a little, um, you know, those, uh, those, um, those, those uh, bits of cloth that have a, a, uh, a wire around the outside and you half twist it into a figure of eight and it folds up into a little thing. Yes. So it's just that with a hole in it. So the, you push the lens through it, it sort of flops forward at an angle of about 45 degrees. It's a good distance from the flash, from the speed, speed light. And that means, you know, whenever you're doing this macro photography, uh, having one of those diffusers, like the closer it is to the actual flash, the less well it diffuses the light. And yeah, it, it's bloody simple. It was relatively inexpensive amongst all the things I've bought for my cameras. It's amongst the least expensive. It's easy to replace. It's easy to pop on and off. It just has a little elasticized ring that fits around the, the lens. I mean, I reckon, Brendan, it's made a marked improvement to my, um, to my macro photography. Oh, I'll tell you what, some of your shots lately, uh, if it's improved on excellence, Mark, I don't know what, what you call that, but um, they've been very, very good. Well, I'm pati- I was particularly pleased to, uh, so obviously we give it uh, 8.6 out of 10. It, it, uh, the, they retail for on eBay for about $15. So they're, they're not horribly expensive, but I'm, I have in our discussions, you have kitted yourself up with a, with a maybe a little bit more professional diffuser set. I'm very keen to, um, to maybe so do me a side actually, by actually side. use it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have to get out there and use it, Mark. That's the, that's the difference between the two of us having, <laughs> getting the time to get out there and access to the, amazing variety of animals that you have up there um which i certainly haven't got but yes i need to get out there and use it so i will i will send you some pics once i get sorted with it mark um i must do that yes so um that's photography chat for this week but um yeah i'm very impressed with some of your your pics Mark. as usual as i always am mark as i always am so i think we well we don't have a particular email that i think we we won't talk about any emails this week mark but we'll get stuck straight into the main topic and this is one that we covered previously a little bit of a while ago episode 175 which scarily enough was way back in february the 5th 2021 time flies time (laughs) flies and here we are in episode 292 so been well over 100 episodes before uh, between um, chats about this topic so and it's one that's often and I'm sure you'll be saying exactly the same as me Mark it's a, a very common topic as far as questions from veterinarians um, and practices um, who are not used to dealing with rabbits Mark um, where they might um, flick us an email or a phone call and say hey what is it with bloat in rabbits? Um, and <laughs> gee, let, let's see if we, we might have to split this up into two episodes again <laughs> because it's such a big topic. But yeah, we're going to talk about bloat in rabbits, Mark, and uh, walk through some of our some of our sort of high points and, and low points about um, uh, diagnosis and the signs and treatment and surgical options and whether it's medical and prognosis, etc. Um, because it is 
it's one of those one of those things, isn't it? When you think of rabbits, um, if you put four or five topics on the top of people's list, bloat would certainly be one of them. You know, amongst other things like gut stasis and um, so. Brendan, how when you're thinking of it, how do you sort of like? Um, you know, is there a classification? Is there a definition? How do you... Yeah. That's a bit of a rubbery question, isn't <laughs> it, Mark? Yeah. I mean, traditionally, it's, it's, it's a, you know, the, yes, the, we, great question, of course. Thank you very much um, to start us off. <laughs> yeah. Traditionally, we, we, you know, in the textbooks separate, you know, they, they often compare and contrast bloat in rabbit to to a classic gut stasis um, as far as the, the outlook for them, one being mainly surgical, the bloat, um, and one being main, mainly medical, the gut stasis, um, and also the prognosis too in that gut stasis is um, have a very favourable prognosis a lot of the time and bloat has a, a very poor prognosis a lot of the time. Um, but, yeah, there's a lot of grey in between. But traditionally bloat is obviously what the, the word means. It's a it's a, a obtended, distended rabbit. Um, typically it's the stomach we're talking about um, in 99% of the cases. Um, and they're about to pop, Mark, um, hence the, the title for this week, um, which is Popped 2. Popped 1 was the original, episode 175. So, yeah, sometimes they're very easy to pick there and it's it's a rabbit that's trying to die on you. Um, it's a very distended abdomen there and um, very painful and it's looking critically ill because it, it is, Mark. So that's the classic bloat in them. But, yeah, there's lots of in-betweens and some of the GI stasis ones can progress from a classic GI stasis to a, to a really, you know, um, emergency bloat situation. So there's lots of, lots of, stages in between and lots of possibilities so and i think that's part of the challenge with this with bloating rabbits markets trying to determine is this an early bloat case that is going to form into one of those fulminating bloat cases that does need um, immediate attention or is it one we can just hang in there with supportive care and and gut stasis treatment um, for that mild mild type bloat that's going on to dissipate with it now, does that answer the question? Probably it's not. A perfect answer, and <laughs> and I think the essence of your answer, it was exactly what I was trying to tease out that um, that maybe some of the traditional definitive this or that type um, uh, ways to look at um, gastrointestinal disease in rabbits, it, it's not always clear. And they can. There's a hell of a lot of grey, um, and there's a lot of diagnostic steps to take to be more confident that that you're headed down a particular pathway yeah, there's gr gradations isn't there mark and yeah. I, I think it's it's like the textbooks when you look at a and i know i've mentioned this before a surgical textbook with any procedure whether it's you know a leg amputation or a cruciate surgery beautifully laid out anatomical diagrams uh, <laughs> and when you have that case in front of you the whole knee joint's blown up and um, there's there's blood clots everywhere and there's inflamed tissue and you're thinking where the hell's that muscle that they um, have on the first page of the of the dissection um, textbook so yeah it's it's um it's not as simple as it's either bloat or geostasis that's for sure so and that's 
part of the art of of, of veterinary science, and it's it's part of you know if you see lots of rabbits, I think uh, you get better. You never get perfect at it. Determining which one will cope with um, medical treatment and which one is going to form into that classical bloat, which is a true emergency um, in rabbits. So, Mark, would you? Yes, I think we've sort of mentioned a bit, but do, do you want to talk about what typically you would see as the as the signs of these bloat cases that present to the clinic? Well, they often present as you suggested, acutely, they often present as the the rabbit that was, you know, earlier today, um, uh, uh, bunnying around the lounge room, doing its normal rabbit things, then all of a sudden is exceedingly unwell. Um, they very regularly go off, you know, they're not interested in food. Um, they uh, just often adopt body positions that that are unusual. Obviously, that's an attempt to control the painful abdomen. Um, but their owners will often report that they've taken to hiding under the the uh, lounge, or they can't be coaxed out from a particular location. They may not immediately, as as you highlighted, the obviously the the tympanic abdomen is a uh, is a good, strong clinical sign that leads you in the right direction. But in those early stages, when things, when gases may not have accumulated in um, in the stomach or other uh, uh, organs, they, they may just be rabbits that are horribly painful in the abdomen, displaying diffuse uh, um, GI signs, and just n- acutely very not right. Absolutely. Sorry, I'm putting my um, my little mouse wasn't clicking properly there. Um, yes. So, so and so let's let's assume we have a rabbit that's suspected bloat um, that's come in presented to us in the clinic, whether it's that severe one or or, or one that potentially can pro- progress to that. Um, we should next chat about the diagnosis, Mark. How do we go about um, determining whether this is a rabbit with bloat or with something else going on? What do you well, typically do? It it can be, and it's no surprise having the discussion we've just had about the non-specific signs. Very often, um, it can be really difficult to get that diagnosis, and so one of the things that that we would always look to do very early in the the piece when we have a rabbit who shows some abdominal discomfort and some acute changes that we associate with uh, pain in the abdomen is to take a radiograph. We, of course, obtain our history. We do a thorough physical exam. Often those physical examination findings are uh, non-specific, um, and so radiographs are the are the very next thing that we um, uh, that yep. we look for. I agree, and the good news there is, Mark, even with the ones that are fairly you know early to moderate bloat, we there is a classic sort of presentation or 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 view on those radiographs, and that is a fluid-filled stomach with a really obvious gas cap that we see on them. And it's, um, you know, sometimes when I see that, I think, yes, I know it's a bloat. And then I think, no, it's a bloat. Unfortunately, the poor rabbit's not going to have a potentially um, good outcome with it. But 
you know straight away that you're dealing with a bloke there, and it's it's pretty pretty obvious there, isn't it, Mark? I mean that 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 stomach's um, started that moderate to severe um, dilation there, and gee, those ones that have that severe bloat, Mark, when you you know you don't really need to take the radiograph on those ones, but it's it's amazing how how that stomach doesn't pop. It's ridiculous, isn't it? The the stomach is large, it's round. Um, in the early stages, it's clearly fluid-filled. And the gas cap, because often the rabbit, as the radiograph's taken um, in a lateral view, um, the gas cap is in the centre of the of the stomach. So um, it, it looks like, you know, two uh, dark round circles surrounded by a much uh, larger, lighter circle. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm often amazed um, that they get to the size they do and that they have not burst. They must just be like, you know, balloon thickness, uh, balloon skin thickness by the time they get to the size some of them we see. Well, when we get into the surgical aspects of it, we, yeah, you, you, you do see how thin that stomach wall is, Mark. It's, it's scary, isn't it? Um, when, scary is when right. You're doing it, and this is where, at this point, um, with these severe bloat ones, I will immediately go back to the client and say things are not good, and we have a pretty serious discussion about um, the prognosis for this animal. Um, regardless of whether we started any any um, of the other workup and stabilisation of the patient um, about the fact that the prognosis is not good. Um, and certainly in my my experience with these classic severe bloats, Mark, it's, it's not looking good for the rabbit. I certainly offer them the possibility of a surgical solution and as jumping ahead of ourselves here that with these ones, the only one we're going to fix it in 99% of the time is to take them to surgery and don't, um, jumping around a little bit here, don't be tempted to just pop a trocar in there um, to deflate it, Mark. I think that's a great point to make early in the process, Brendan, because, um, you know, with many of our other species that may have uh, gastric dilation, um, sticking a needle in to get the gas out provides some relief so that buys you time um, is a reasonable medical tactic in, in many of those instances. But, but with this species, because that stomach is, is, well, it literally, once you stick a needle in it, I'm not surprised when they like split and peel back and then you've got an abdomen yeah, full yeah. of stomach contents. Yep. Um, and that's a very short story once that happens. Yeah, so we certainly do. But we would, you know, j- jumping around a bit, but we would consider initially as part of the stabilisation to try and decompress um, via stomach tube, Mark, um, which can be a, a real challenge, which we'll get to in a minute and the reasons why it may may not work, um, but that's a legitimate tactic we can try and try to to help relieve the, the gas and the pressure um, in that in that bloat, even if we are jumping in the surgery as well, we'd still be trying to do that yes. with it. So how, how when with that whole process of passing a stomach tube, obviously a good thing, even if you are headed towards surgery, but my experience has been that um, working, you know, anaesthetize the rabbit, 
treat it for its shock and pain. Um, you've got to do these things quickly, haven't you? Because it's a critical patient. Yep. Then um, passing a stomach tube itself, um, once you've got the rabbit intubated, passing a stomach tube can be a little bit, um, uh, not always as easy as you would, you know, I seem to be able to get the endotracheal tube down the esophagus with relative ease. Um, <laughs> but um, but when I actually go to pass a stomach tube, um, uh, I it doesn't always work as well as, um, as, as yep. I'd hope. And then once I get it into the stomach, crikey, Brendan, it always seems that no matter how big a tube I use, and they seem to get glugged up um, with uh, whatever's in the stomach, um, the fluid and, and uh, food remnants. Um, I don't seem to be able to get much out. No, I haven't found any any trick to increasing the chances of, of removing that, and that's because of the the ingestor that we do have in that rabbit stomach market is that thick and gluggy, and it, it, it is often unrewarding. Um, you may... You may have a little bit of gas release um, if um, when you first put that in there, um, but yeah, it's a, it's, it's difficult, isn't it, Mark? And and you did touch on one thing that we sort of jumped over here is is the fact that we're dealing with a an animal that's trying to die on us, and which means two things: one, we um, we probably will, die, or three things: I probably will <laughs> die. Um, um, it may not, but it probably will. Secondly, we want to try and stabilise as best we can, but we want to be as quick as we can with things. So it's a, a real juggling act, isn't it, Mark? Right. Trying to provide some analgesia, get get in your intravenous fluids into them, get in some, you know, get on on the anaesthetizer on their heat pads, and and getting in there and getting the job done. So it's a, it's well, it's our equivalent of our um, GDVs in our dogs, I suppose, if not if not more difficult, um, I, I think, as far as the outlook goes, because they're so decompensated. They're, there's so much pressure on the cardiovascular system. Um, and being a rabbit, um, they're, they're, you know, doing their best to try and die on us um, throughout the whole process as well. So it's, and that's where getting back to chatting to the clients and, and walking them through all of this and saying, look, you know, we, I'm willing to have a crack at, um, fixing your rabbit and do it. we need to take it to surgery immediately um, or, or, or virtually immediately once we've tried a couple of these stabilising bits and pieces. Um, but our outlook's not good and no, it's not a – the, the way I phrase these sort of questions to the clients, Mark, I'd be interested to see what you say to them. I say, look, it's not a bad decision if you decide that – we don't go ahead with surgery, you know. So I think it's important to lay out the the facts as they are and don't don't sugarcoat it. Um, we've got a critically ill animal that 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 may die on us, and if they decide not to take the plunge for the surgery, then not to feel guilty. And I think, Brendan, in my experience, the we'll often have these cases referred to us. And so people are coming pretty highly motivated and with a high expectation. You know, they're coming to someone that knows rabbits. And so you do have to handle that that discussion very carefully um, because, uh, you, you know, you, you don't want to look like you're, um, 
you're just going, oh, this is all too hard, we're going to bail out. Um, but it, it definitely is the case that um, that even with everything going perfectly well, a significant number of these cases are, go- are going to die. The, the cardi- as you said, the cardiovascular changes that are engendered by the, the um, dilated stomach, once, even if it's perfectly uh, corrected and reduced, the the um, chemicals that are released by that damaged stomach, that stretched stomach, um, they can mess up um, cardiovascular function worse and worse even after correction. And so it's really important to convey that well to the client sympathetically. But as you say, um, it's not um, a bad decision to say this is as far as we go and we're not going to put the rabbit through anymore. And always, always with any any um, case when there's multiple um, parts that you might take, offering them all possibilities and, and giving them your opinion as far as the prognosis with each step and also the costs involved um, with each step. So you're covering all your bases there. So let's jump into this actual surgery, Mark, for these classic bloats, Mark. We've, we've spoken about the prognosis. Um, the whole aim is to try and unbloat the rabbit, Mark, is my term. And <laughs> typically uh, we find that majority of these blockages that are causing the bloat are at the pylorus or the or the duodenum, Mark. Is, um, well, that's what I certainly find. Yep, um, yep definitely. And, and they can be various things. It may be a wad of rabbit fur that could be blocking there. So it doesn't have to be a, an actual foreign body that's ingested, Mark. I don't think that's Non-rabbit fur, yeah. Yeah, no, no. They're, they're, the, the grooming, particularly of many of the, our long-breed, um, long-haired breed rabbits, um, that, that uh, would be a common uh, occurrence. A bees or a felted uh, pellet of some sort um, would be a common uh, cause of this problem, and it it doesn't. It's it's not you know that classic fibre ball that we might think is a gigantic you know four or five centimetre thing like a, a cat fur ball. These are often tightly felted, only you know, a centimetre or so. They're not big things generally. No, no. And then that f- we follow on from there with the actual surgical process there. We're not going to go into great detail about uh, about um, every aspect of that, Mark, but the things I'd like us to touch on is removing that. And we, we've got, this, I suppose, two different methods that are generally thought of um, and you need to pick your case where that one is to, do what you'd consider doing in a lot of species with an intestinal obstruction that we're doing a, an enterotomy, we're making an incision over that duodenum or, or potentially into the stomach there, Mark, and we're removing that blockage there. And with all the hassles and the and the risks involved with doing that, if we still got a a tympanic stomach there, Mark, um, it's it's um interesting process isn't it oh. making that first incision into that stomach and then trying to remove uh, that ingester that suddenly flows out like a lava um, <laughs> without it heading into the abdominal cavity there and then identifying the block um, that a little blockage and removing that and making sure uh. that we've assessed 
assess that um, viability of the gut um, that where the blockage was because when oh, I have, so... you know, I've had ones where I've, I've, I've been quite happy with my surgical technique there, Mark, and I've managed to remove the incise over the blockage there, remove it, and I think, yes, we've got a win here. I need to look at the gut and it's all necrotic and we end up phoning up the client and saying, look, it's an area that I don't think we're going to pull things together because it may be involved, say, in the pyloric region and the duodenal region and, uh, and 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 some of the rest of the stomach seems not very well um, vascularized and it's um, starting to become necrotic and we end up euthanizing the animal. And it's amazing how that can happen literally while you are, you know, um, doing the surgery. You, you uh, get in, you're able to maybe find that felted uh, pellet in the proximal duodenum you massage a little bit to start with um, sometimes you're able to move it sometimes you have to do the enterotomy um, but then the otherwise the, the the pink tissue it looked pretty good and healthy when you first started manipulating it you were very gentle with your technique but while you're watching there'll be black spots develop and an avascular um, tissue starts to appear like literally in my experience while you're watching it yes it's i was going to say fun but probably that's not the right word <laughs> to describe it mark and you briefly touched on so our two the two techniques that are done uh that are performed one is the you know incising um and the other one mark well it's it's the old toothpaste technique oh, isn't it how i in most circumstances i bore the toothpaste technique but this is one time um that i i uh get great joy when i have that um gentle squeeze from behind artificial peristalsis and uh and it starts to slide away from that um that particular location and um and once it starts to move um you do start to see things uh um change in the in the stomach as um some gas and whatnot can pass around the the felt mat so you do feel like this is great it's moving on um but you have to watch, don't you, Brendan? Yes. So that is the milking of the instruction without making an incision there. And there's a, I think there's at least a couple of um, published papers or, or case reports of, of that technique out there these days. And, yeah, it can be a, a very satisfying, successful technique with them um, and avoiding that avoiding the incision over the, over the gut there, Mark. But remembering that their prognosis for these true bloat ones is, is still um, not great, um, but um, it's a real win if you do get one of those there, Mark. Um, so, yes, and then our post-op with, with those is exactly as we would do with any animal with that's had a gut obstruction, um, you know, monitoring them extremely closely, continuing the critical care of the animal and um, and hoping that we've got away with um, one that we that you know it would have died these would all die yeah, if we have not taken them to surgery i've got a now, couple of quick questions for you Brandon. yes the first one is that i find that first incision a little bit scary that uh, and i often am making a an incision in the linear alba Yes. But I have to be, I find I have to be exceedingly careful uh, because the um, the tympanic stomach is often just like right there. 
um, and um, and it, yep. it's probably pushed the seekum out of the way. And if I'm because I am excited and trying to do it quick, um, I just have to like slow myself down at that point and make sure I don't um, cut things I don't want to cut. And uh, so my question is, do, do you? What steps do you take, like when you do make that gastric incision, are you packing the abdomen with, with sponges? Are you using suction? What are you doing to ensure that the larva doesn't end up in the abdominal cavity? Uh, <laughs> great question. Well, number one, we've tried to tried to decompress it um, a little bit via that stomach tube first to try and um, decrease that pressure as that um, stomach pushing up on your incision site which often doesn't work as we described there. I tend to make a very, very small incision there, Mark. So with my scalpel blade, I'd be making half a centimetre of that. And then I slide my scissors in there, Mark, and, and I'm using them to, to slowly uh, expand the incision site um, rather than using the scalpel blade and I think that makes me less likely to pop that stomach um, so I suppose that's my tip as far as that aspect of it um, but as far as preventing the larva flow lots of flushing lots of packing off I tend to um, pack off with um, gauze um, or, or actually abdominal packs that have been soaked in sterile saline um, and, and pack it off that way, Mark. Um, I don't, um, as a general rule, use suction or anything like that. I just, just pack everything off and and potentially think about putting, although yeah, they can so pull through st stay, stay sutures, um, um, but they can just rip through. <laughs> so yeah. it's, 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 a, it's, it's a difficult surgery, Mark. What's your tips for it? Well, I was going to say that um, initially uh, placing stay sutures in the stomach wall, you know, you always try and do that to allow you to manipulate, you know, almost form a little cup to catch the lava. Um, you can pull the stomach wall up. But a, a lot of these cases are so, the stomach is so stretched and often devitalized to a certain extent um, that the um, that your sutures will pull through, um, yep. and then you end up with a raggedy, torn edge that um, that is is additionally contaminated. So, so I think you have to make a little bit of an assessment of the likelihood of success of stay sutures before you place them. Yep, and um, and oftentimes my choice is not to place them. Yeah, it's challenging. We keep saying the same word, Mark. <laughs> it's challenging. So. We mentioned the, the main causes of the blockage there, Mark, and I suppose there's another one that is occasionally seen, and that's um, neoplasms. Yes. Uh, so, so don't forget, um, similar to any species, we may have a, a tumour that's been growing there, and then it may, it may be, it may be finally blocked by a little bit of the matted fur or whatever as well. But there was an underlying tumour there that was part of the process there, Mark. Um, so, so. Let's just, before we finish, Mark, if we can just mention our thoughts on those mild bloats, the ones that are start off as a, you know, maybe we call it a, a more serious gut stasis or a developing bloat case. What's your management of those ones, Mark? Well, I think there is a very small, well, there's one thing to say before I talk about them, and that is 
I would counsel against going down a medical path in these cases in almost all instances. That Even in the early ones, I think uh, this is one condition where a chance to cut is a chance to cure. Um, and not cutting um, almost certainly guarantees you that you're, um, you're going to have a patient that doesn't make it. But we did highlight at the beginning the the little bit of a grey nature of this um this condition, and certainly I've had cases where owners have been unable to bring themselves to make a final decision one way or the other, and we've been aggressive with pain relief and fluid support, um, and uh, um, some motility modifiers. And and we have had patients who have uh, who have slowly turned the corner, not continued to um, to uh, uh, head towards circling the drain, and and eventually pull through. I think that those patients have to be fair, and and particularly one that I followed through uh, for some time afterwards. They ended up with uh, an ongoing series of problems. So even though they survived the 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 uh, bloat event, I think there were consequences to the the contractility and tonicity of the gastric wall that that did give them chronic problems. So um, we know that survival isn't the only measure of success in these conditions, but there are times when fairly aggressive medical support um, may get you to the point where you could have an animal that survives. Interesting, Mark. This is one of the few times when we might be at opposing ends of the spectrum here <laughs> because of a reasonable number of these ones I do tend to just go down the medical um, therapy with them, those developing ones, perhaps because my surgical skills are not <laughs> up to yours, I think. But we, yeah, and we get a reasonable response with them, Mark. So I'm not saying that my way is right or your way is wrong or your way is right or my way is wrong, but um, very interesting. I think it's a matter of choosing which ones and at what time do you jump in there and, and do the surgery is my thought. And I'm, I'm just scared of these surgeries, Mark, um, at times. So I, I, that's probably why I do more where I try and do this aggressive sort of supportive care with them. But I think the trick with the, the ones that do respond with that supportive care, it's, it's, it's care for monitoring them and it's measuring things like, the parameters that give you a good indication of, of of whether they're going south or not, like our blood glucose mark. Um, yes. So if that's hitting, you know, 15, 20, whatever, it's getting really high, then then we know things are not looking good for that animal and we have to do something um, more more aggressive with them. Um, so, But if it's coming down um, with that medical management and we're controlling that pain with them, and the bloat itself isn't obviously getting worse, and then we might have a win medically with them. But yeah, it's you know as we mentioned at the start, it's a it's a big spectrum, isn't it? Um, of these cases from the the classic easy to easy, and it's always a good you know it's often a good exam question that's provided in the unusual pet medicine 
college exams mark as well as at universities with you know what what is going on with this rabbit and you'd have one extreme you'd have a bloat rabbit or you'd have a gut stasis rabbit um but but there's lots of lots of degrees in between which makes makes life difficult and rabbits as we know mark they like to make things difficult for us at times don't they always the case brendan always the case i wonder whether my tendency to leap to surgery early because i want uh the patient to be as least compromised as possible whether i'm almost self-selecting out the cases that would pull through i wonder wonder if it's something like that i have no idea mark but i'm sure you you're you are making the <laughs> right decision now you, you started to make me think you are making the right decisions <laughs> I'm, I'm sure yes um no it, <sighs> Well, it is distressing, Brendan, because we've gone for the best part of five years doing this podcast and every (laughs) single episode going, oh, yes, I do exactly the same. And now we've found something that we do different. (laughs) And we probably both get the same result. Very low percentage of (laughs) success. I think with that, Mark, um, we look forward to some emails on this topic. I'd like to know people's um, thoughts on surgical versus non-surgical on these um, on these uh, uh, mild or developing bloat cases, and what your thoughts are on the prognosis and the surgical techniques. And if we've missed anything else that um, uh, of, of value um, in our little summary here and I think with that Mark we will get out of here and talk to you all next week thanks for listening thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes listen to previous episodes and more You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.